0: Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Um, glad to have you tuning in today. Uh, I'd like to say good to see you, but maybe pretty soon that's what's going to happen. Uh, can we all agree that COVID has messed up our world? I'm pretty sure you can probably amen that. But there is actually, when it comes to COVID, there is one serious question I have. Will we ever see the return of buffets? No, seriously. Will we ever see the return of buffets? Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good buffet, be it an all-inclusive resort or at cruises, or for me, especially any type of Asian cuisine, um, whether it's Chinese, Korean, East Indian, that is fabulous. Because what we eat really matters to a lot of us, doesn't it? And all of us have different ways that we look at this. Um, I have to confess that there was a time in my life where I was actually more concerned about quantity rather than quality of food. And so all you can eat buffets were always okay with me. And even now, they're always okay with me. Now, although it's COVID and there's, unless you know of one, I'm not quite sure. But I have always found that eating at buffets can be intriguing. Intriguing. And when you think about it, the amount of freedom that you have at a buffet is unbelievable. My parents used to go to this place. It was called the Royal Fork in Fargo. And for whatever reason, that was their pilgrimage. It was almost like a spiritual thing. Like for over 25 years, they'd be doing this. Um, But I remember, I remember the first experience with them many years ago, many moons ago at some random buffet. I can only remember the brown booths and the brown... um, uh, carpet, it could have been sizzler, it could have been bonanza i 'm not quite sure, but it was something along that lines, and you paid when you came in and you could eat as much as you want now, as a boy growing up full of energy that that was heaven right you know, and as a kid, that was heaven because I could start off anywhere I wanted, I could start off with hot food first if I wanted, or there was buns that you could eat. Um, You know, I could follow that up with the, you know, seasonal fruit to cleanse the palate and then move on to the ice cream or the cake or the the pies or the, the cookies or the candy that was there for dessert. And then, you know, after you're all said and done, everybody's sitting around the table and if the mood hits you, you can actually make one more trip for more protein if need be because you just have that little bit or you think you have just a little bit of room left in your stomach. Uh, when I visited a friend of mine, Marty, you remember Marty Middlestaff from uh, Springfield, Missouri, Uh, we would talk about buffets, and he kept telling me about this swine fest. He says, there's a swine fest that you need to experience in Springfield, and uh, it was a local, all-you-can-eat restaurant called Lambert's Cafe. Well, it was the furthest thing from a cafe. Uh, You come in, they're throwing bread rolls at you. I kid you not. The staff was good. If you can't catch, you had a problem. But uh, uh, it it. It was actually a buffet delivered to your table. Um, people are bringing you food from every direction. You had a piece of brown paper uh, that functioned as a tablecloth and in some cases as a plate because the servers would come by. They'd put okra down or mashed potatoes, even black eyed peas directly on the table and you'd eat it off the, off the table, off the, uh, the brown paper that was there. And so, an experience, Um, but I have to confess that even now, when I I approach a buffet, my memories get triggered, if I can say that, and I would actually revert back to that initial visit with my parents. Now, I am still unsure why most of all-you-can-eat buffet places have salad bars. I don't know if you can track with me on that one, because let's be honest, people, does anybody want to eat a salad when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet? Well, of course not. No, no, no one's in the mood for a salad chooses an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? We go there for all the other stuff, but let's be honest. When we actually go through the line, we all feel a little bit guilty, and we have to add at least a little salad on our plates, and it's probably the only healthy thing that's actually available is the green stuff that you put on your plate. But the freedom at a buffet is amazing. You know, uh, you could do whatever you want at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and it's an unreal feeling. There aren't any workers standing around saying, Mr. Michalski, you've already uh, had three helpings of vegetables, you know. I'm afraid we can't let you move on to another helping. You have to try some of our desserts or... Uh, they're not standing there going, Mr. Machalski, I'm sorry, you've reached your, your quota of beef today. I'm not going to allow you to take any more. You should eat some broccoli, right? Um, there's nobody standing guard over the soup bowls or the dessert bowls, and nobody's saying, you know, sir, this is only for soup, or no, this is only for ice cream. You know, you could take whatever bowl you want. As a matter of fact, I remember I had a, uh, there was a soup buffet at a, restaurant here in the city. And uh, they actually were serving one of my favorite soups. It was a clam chowder. And of course, at every good buffet, if there's soup, you stir it up and you scoop it from the bottom. And that's exactly what I did. I scooped it from the bottom of the pot and I put it in my bowl and I sat down and I ate with great vigor and anticipation this clam chowder. And when I got to the bottom of the bowl, there was a green piece of chewing gum staring right at me. Just thought I'd share all that with you. Anyway, you know, but my personal pet peeves about buffets is even not so much, you know, people throwing gum in the soup, but the fact that our eyes are too big for our stomachs and that we leave food on the plate only to be thrown out and only for us to go back for more. So if you ever go with me to a buffet, if the ever have them again i'm not sure be prepared for me to tell you to finish your plate before you go for seconds thirds or fourths i'm just saying but buffets all you can eat freedom right and the fact is when you walk into that buffet and you're looking at all the tables, and you see the colors, and you smell the smells, you experience that amazing freedom to enjoy everything that has been prepared however you would like it. But that also brings me to my final observation. While we always have the freedom to eat, you know, whatever we want and whatever quantity we want, my guess is that the majority of us actually practice and limit our freedoms or discipline ourselves a little bit differently in the middle of April than we would in the middle of November when we visit a buffet. Why? Well, because middle of November, winter's settling in, right? You know, and during that time of year, we wear baggy clothes, we layer it on, we stay warm. It it sort of hides our shape, and if we consume a few extra calories or happen to put on a pound or ten, you know, it's it's no big deal, right? Nobody's going to really notice because we just wear that big fluffy sweater. But, you know, in the middle of April, and if we were to go to a buffet, and we know that summer is right around the corner, and that means we'll be wearing shorts and studly bathing suits, right? And at this time of the year, Many of us are actually watching very carefully how many calories we are now consuming and trying hard to take off that extra pound or ten. So we have the freedom to eat as much as we want at the buffet or at the dessert bar, but we will choose to give up that right, to give up that freedom. Why? To protect ourselves from consuming extra calories and putting on extra weight. Well, maybe you, but obviously not so much me. Anyway, in scenarios like this, it's not unheard of for an individual to lay aside a personal right or freedom that he or she has, right? Why? Because ultimately it's for something else that he or she is trying to achieve. At at the core of the decision becomes a self-centered motivation. So when it comes to buffets and it comes to coming into summer, our self-centered motivation is I want to lose weight. I don't want to look big in my bathing suit. So I'm going to skip out on dessert today or I'm going to stop having bread or I'm going to eat more salads, right? But how often, when you think about it, that's for us. That's self-centered for us. But how often are we willing to lay aside a personal right or freedom for the good of another person? Probably not very often. And yet this is how Paul says in Corinthians that we should live our lives as believers in Christ. Not being concerned with our own rights and our own freedoms first, but being concerned first with God's glory and the good of others personally. And I believe that if there's ever a text that applies to what's going on in our country right now regarding COVID and masks and everything else, it is this. Now we're continuing on in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul is writing to the church regarding temptation and the eating of meat sacrificed to the idols. He's already told them that although technically eating meat is not that big of a deal, but in the big picture, for the sake of others... And even for the sake of yourselves, don't eat the the stuff that's been sacrificed to the idols. Especially stop going to the temples, participating in the rituals, because there's still a spiritual side to everything that's going on. And so Paul's walking this theological tightrope, and we now find ourselves at verse 23, where Paul continues where he left off. And he writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat markets without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat at whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Am I referring to the other person's conscience? Not yours. Sorry, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Here we have Paul's final statement regarding Christian freedom, Christian liberty, whatever you want to call it. You know, we've been dealing with the subject of how does a Christian function within the framework of their freedom. You know, how does a Christian know what is right or wrong when the Bible doesn't tell them anything clearly? And what does our Christian freedom allow us to do? And so this section contains one of the most important and essential uh, statements in the entire Bible. In fact, it's a statement that is vital because it encompasses every, everything else in, in all that the Scripture says, and it brings it down to actually one statement, and it's in verse 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now that is the bottom line of the Christian life. That basically is the meaning of life for anyone. We are here for one primary reason, and that is to glorify God. So whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I don't think you can make a more general statement than that. And chapters 8 to 10 have revealed that many of the Corinthian believers were confused about their rights and their freedoms in Christ and what the basis for Christian behavior was. What can we do? What can we not do? What does the Bible say? What's right? What's wrong? And many in the church at Corinth had wrongly identified knowledge and rights as a basis for Christian behavior. They thought that by obtaining greater knowledge that they would be built up in their faith. And, but unfortunately, their pursuit of knowledge led them into greater pursuits of their own rights, which didn't reflect true Christianity because it was all based on their own selfishness. Paul's identified the basis of Christian behavior as love. And he'll expand that greatly in, in, in chapter 13 when we get to it. But love always sought to edify, to encourage, to to benefit others so that ultimately they can be saved. That's really the whole purpose about this is that other people encounter God and are saved. Last week we looked how Paul addressed the believers who were participating in the idol feasts that are taking place in the pagan temples. Many of the believers had believed that they could go in, that they could participate in these feasts based on their rights and freedoms. Additionally, they also believed that you know, attendance at a pagan temple was a non- non-essential in regards to their faith. In other words, they felt it didn't affect their salvation. It wasn't a big deal. I can do this. And Paul understood attendance at a pagan temple as idolatry. Paul had to correct their misunderstanding, demonstrating while that there is really only one true God, There are spiritual beings. There are demons who are opposed to God, who disguise themselves sort of as other gods. And so by attending and participating in these feasts and in these cultic rituals, they were identifying themselves with that demon. That's what Paul said last week. And so in the same way, you know, uh, Paul then brings into the Lord's Supper and it says, you know, you're also trying to identify yourself with Jesus whenever you participate in the Lord's Supper. And yet there were things that were considered non-essential things that did not play a crucial part in one's faith that still needed to be clarified. These are new believers in some respects. And so what Paul has done here is that he now turns his attention to the rights and freedoms concerning non-essentials that the believer had. All right. Can I speak my mind? Now, I know some of you are putting on your hat and putting on your seatbelts. I need you to pay close attention here. Those of you who love to post your COVID crazy stuff on social media at all, if I can say. Masks, no masks; distancing, no distancing. Uh, Washing hands is essential. That's not an option. If you don't do it, you're gross. I just want to say that. But if you're tied up in this whole COVID discussion of deep state, Uh, QAnon, conspiracy theories, hoax, or whatever other craziness floats your boat. Stop listening to the propaganda that's coming out of the U.S. and maybe start focusing on what's happening in our province and nation. Secondly, most of you need to do a fact check. But that's even futile because we are all internet theologians or internet epidemiologists, if I could put it that way, and you're always going to find at least one disgraced heretic or one disgraced quack who's going to justify your stance. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Jerry, you know, Jesus came to give us freedom. The government's taking away our rights. What's next? You know, we're just sheeple. I need to say a few words before we move forward. It's actually a very sad day when the church, when believers no longer care about biblical statements and commands that compel us as believers to be servants, slaves, loss, obedient to the authorities over us, and much more. A friend of mine said this. We have moved from the concept of do unto others as you would have them do unto you and instead embrace the idea of do unto others before they do unto you. You know, we can't be like Cain who, who said to God in Genesis 4-9, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, yes. We are our brothers' and sisters' keepers. We have a responsibility not to harm or injure the spiritual or the physical growth of another brother or sister. Paul's words in verses 23 and 24 should sound familiar to us because they're not new. Paul quotes a popular slogan that he already made reference to once before in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He quoted that slogan twice, each time following that slogan with a qualifying statement. The slogan was, I have the right to do anything. You know, and, and, and the believers in Corinth would basically say, you know, we believe in Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf, and we are no longer bound by Old Testament law. It's not in our works or our actions that save us, but completed work of Jesus. And therefore, we're no longer bound to keeping the Old Testament laws, but we have freedom in Christ. And this is the way that many believers would live their lives in Corinth. So what Paul was seeing and hearing reports of, was a great deal, listen carefully, was a great deal of self-centered, rights-based living amongst the believers in Corinth. (laughs) And as a result, Paul made another point again in verse 23 to qualify their slogan in order to help the Corinthian believers to have a more Christ-centered, others-first perspective. Are you tracking with me? Because it's screaming COVID. Others first. Christianity is Christ-centered. Others first. That needs to be lived out by those who profess this faith. And so in turning his attention to the things that were non-essentials in the faith, Paul was challenging the believers in Corinth not to look at the things through the lens of permissibility, but rather look at things through the lens of love. The more important question was not if believers in Christ had the freedom to do certain things, but whether or not such behavior, such choices, would be helpful to others and build others up. When Paul went on to say that with great clarity in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul's basically saying here, freedom does not mean to seek my own good. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek to benefit and build up another person. In verses 25 to 27, Paul gave two specific examples of non-essentials and freedom the freedoms that the believers had. He said, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an under, unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. See, the issue of concern here was the consumption of the meat because of the meat market often, as I said earlier, sold meat that was butchered by the pagan priests and it was part of the sacrifice. When you look at the history and you look at the theology behind it, the Jews were forbidden to eat that kind of meat. Jews, practicing Jews. And so now these Christians, based on Judaism, right? Their Bible was the Old Testament. There's a lot of uncertainty among these Christians as to whether or not eating this meat now is permissible for them. So many Christians, when you think about it, did come out of Judaism. And some of the Gentile converts considered Christianity a sect of the Jews. So what's a Christian to do in regards to meat purchased at the market? You know, were they to abstain from meat sold at the market entirely? Were they to investigate whether the meat they intended to purchase had been, you know, part of a pagan sacrifice? How were they to handle the situation? You know, do you investigate? So tell me, uh, where did you get this meat? Who did you get it from? When did you get it? And can I have their number? And Paul's already said that the meat is a non-essential to the Christian faith. In other words, God's not concerned about the meat that an individual ate and the meat consumed by an individual because it really doesn't impact his or her faith. Therefore, you know what? Go, eat the meat sold at the market without investigating its origins, without it being a matter of conscience. And that's why Paul said, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Because eating meat was non-essential. It was a matter that was outside the concerns of conscience. So the believers in Corinth weren't to try to make it an issue. Paul expressed his reason for this in verse 26, and he quotes Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Paul's argument was that the earth and everything in it was God's creation. And that he was the ultimate source of everything it all originated from God, then nothing can really contaminate it. There's no way that the consumption of that meat could cause one to fall into sin. And this becomes really a a critical question for yourself that you have to answer for yourself. Because each of us, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we have to define our boundaries, our self-limitations, especially for others out of love and respect for Christ. See, not only did Paul say it was permissible for Christians to go to the market and purchase meat for themselves to eat, he also said it was permissible for them to go to an unbeliever's house and eat whatever served uh, to them there. You know, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. That's what we told our kids when they were growing up. You're going to eat whatever's put before you. You But the concern here is twofold. See, Jews considered Gentiles unclean, and they didn't eat meals with them. So the biggest question then is, so what did this mean for the Christians? Were Christians also supposed to abstain from eating with non-believers? You know, would that be a sin if they did? And secondly, there was no way for a believer in Christ to know where the meat being served to him or her had originated from. You know, did it come from the marketplace? If so, was it part of the animal that had been sacrificed to a pagan god? And for these reasons, you know, taking up a non-believer on his invitation to dinner seemed to be another gray area for believers in Christ where the issues of freedom didn't seem to be very clear. But just as Paul said in regards to buying and eating meat sold at the market, he said, go and eat. Eat whatever is served without making it an issue of conscience. I'd like to interview you please. Where did you buy your meat from before I partake? And see, the best way to understand verse 28 and verse 29 is to see it as a parenthetical explanation. In verses 25 to 27, Paul had given two examples of personal freedoms concerning two specific non-essentials. But personal freedoms always have to be conditioned by the rule of verse 24, to seek the good of our neighbors. And so verses 28 and 29 appear to be this, this hypothetical situation where the criterion of verse 24 would limit one's freedom. Verse 28 says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. The first question is, who is the someone That is providing the individual with insight about where the meat is from. The context used uh, would suggest that it's a non-believer who's also at the dinner. And so Paul is saying, if a non-believer points out to you that the meat is being served, had originally been offered to, let's say, uh, an idol, then Paul says, don't eat it. Just, Just don't eat it. Although... He just said in verses 25 to 27 that the meat is non-essential and that believers in Christ had the personal freedom to eat any meat without it being an issue of conscience. In this situation, Paul's instructed the believer not to eat it. And so the biggest question is, well, why? Because it now seems like we have a conflict. And Paul's response is for the sake of that non-believer and his conscience. It's not about you. And so that raises another question how would a non-believer's conscience be affected by what a Christian did or did not do? <laughs> now, this is huge. Because it does not appear in the situation that the non-believer was putting the believer to a test. He's not testing him, you know, to see whether or not he or she's going to eat the food. Let's see if they do it. It seems more likely that the non-believer, in the scenario that Paul has given, is trying to help the believer in Jesus out. Gentiles saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism. It was also likely that many Gentiles knew that Jews were prohibited from eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so the one who has pointed out the origins of the meat to the Christian has done so out of a moral obligation to the Christian, believing that Christians like Jews would not eat such food. So as not to offend that person, (coughs) You know, nor his or her moral expectations of Christians. And precisely because it's not a matter of Christian moral consciousness, one should abstain under these circumstances. It's about the other person. It's not about my rights and freedoms. Paul is always getting at us, trying to get us as believers, to look out to the other people. And in this particular example, it is a non-believer who, feeling a sense of moral obligation, has attempted to make a believer aware of a situation in which he or she, <laughs> excuse me, believed that the, the Christian beliefs might be compromised. A non-believer is worried that you might compromise your faith. And so in that situation, Paul said the best thing to do is just refrain from eating it. Lay it aside. Lay aside one's personal right and freedom for the good of their neighbor. Say, Mask? I can't believe how many people are making an issue out of a stupid piece of cloth that goes over your face. It doesn't do anything. It does do anything. Just do it. Just do it. I was actually tempted to preach in a mass today. But I'd be afraid that my voice would be very muffled the entire time. Listen, it's important to note this was a non-believer's conscience that's leading a believer to lay aside his freedom to eat the meat being served. It's not a fellow believer's conscience that was leading another believer to lay aside their freedom. Paul does not allow any Christian to make food or drink or any other non-essential issue a matter of Christian concern. Some of us Pentecostals need to hear that over again. Paul does not allow any Christian to make food or drink or any other non-essential issue a matter of Christian concern. It's all about the non-believers around us and how we respond and represent Jesus to them. In the second half of verse 29, Paul says, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. See, Paul resumed the argument he was making for personal freedoms in areas of non-essentials. And the point that he seemed to be trying to emphasize was that believers in Jesus really do have a freedom in matters of non-essentials. So, If that was the case, why did some believers try to determine what other believers could or could not do in matters of non-essentials? And Paul goes on and he says, For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? And again, remember the context here. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth which means he's writing to fellow believers. And apparently there are those in the church in Corinth who are telling Paul that he could not eat meat that he had purchased at the market, and they were condemning him if he did. If God wasn't concerned about the meat that he was eating, why should another Christian be? (coughs) Especially since Paul was genuinely grateful for God's provision of the meat And he was giving God thanks for his provision. How could another Christian sit in judgment over Paul, over a non-essential for which Paul was genuinely grateful and genuinely offering thanks? It makes no sense. And from Paul's perspective, there was no place for Christians to be either directing or judging other Christians in regards to non-essentials. Paul did not end his words on, The personal freedom of Christians here, though. He concludes his thoughts and rights and freedoms, and he returns to the rule of verse 24. And he actually finishes it with some clarifications of that rule, picking it up at verse 31. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. i also like us to add on uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 to actually finish the section off. And then Paul would actually end it at this place and say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What was Christ's example? He laid down his life. He put other people first. It was always about other people. He was always looking out for people. He was always standing up for the weak, for the downtrodden, for the broken. Now listen carefully. Paul understood and taught that all of our rights and freedoms as Christians have to be practiced in the context of two very important rules. Number one, everything we do must be done to the glory of God. And number two, one must not give offense to anyone. And those are big callings. And Paul began to make these clarifications by starting with the issue at hand, but quickly moving forward to actually a very broad perspective. So whether you eat, you know, this is Paul's inclusion of those who are concerned about the issue of meat or other food laws. Whatever you drink, you know, this is the next logical uh, addition since drinking is the common companion of eating. We eat and drink together, right? Or whatever you do, This is Paul's inclusion of any other non-essential that we could imagine. Do it all for the glory of God. The ultimate point for believers, particularly in regards to non-essentials, is that our actions, our behaviors, must be done so that they bring glory and honor and praise to God the Father. If the behavior, if the action or thought we are considering cannot be done for God's glory, then listen, as believers, we shouldn't do it not only must our actions and our behaviors be done for God's glory, but Paul also said we have to guard our actions and our behavior. Why? So that we don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greek, or the church of God. And Paul seemed to have in mind here intentional actions and behaviors, meaning that the believers were not to purposely pursue actions and behaviors that are going to harm other people. And I think it's important that we clarify Paul's use of the phrase, do not cause anyone to stumble. You know, we tend to think this as an offense, as something that that hurts somebody else's feelings, right? But this is not what Paul means here in verse 32. Paul meant that the believers were not to behave in such a way that would prevent another person, whether they were Jew or Greek, from hearing the gospel, or that would alienate one who's already a brother and sister in Christ. Paul's words in verse 32 added an important qualification to the freedoms in believers in Christ. The believers in Corinth, as well as the believers in Christ today, had to understand that their freedom did not mean that they could do whatever they pleased without any regard to others. At the same time, they had to understand that their freedoms weren't dictated by the conscience of another believer. The freedoms they practice had to be done to the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. How are you loving your neighbor? How are you reaching out to your neighbor? How are you showing Jesus? How are you laying aside your rights and freedoms? And Paul continues his statement about not giving offense to anyone in verse 33 when he says, Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I am not seeking my own good, but to the good of many so that they might be saved. He's laying down his rights. And let's be clear from the beginning here. Paul's not striving to be a people pleaser. He's far from it. He made that clear in some of his other letters, like in 1 Thessalonians and in Galatians. Paul understood that the message of the gospel was offensive and to some foolishness, right? We looked at that, 1 Corinthians 1. But Paul's concern in the context of verse 33 is that his conduct, his conduct would not stand in the way of non-believers being saved and that would build up those who were believers in Jesus at the same time. In regards to his relationship with non-believers, he chose not to seek his own advantage, but continually chose instead to seek the good and the advantage of many because he had made the rule of verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of others, or depending on your translation, but the good of his neighbor. The qualifying rule for his own personal freedom was that. So what does that mean then for us today, especially in a time of COVID? Who is your neighbor? What is the application of let no one seek his own good but the good of others? What is your application? How does that apply to you? You might be asking why I'm so pumped up. It's because I see stupid people. Can I say that? I don't even know if I can say that. Maybe it's time I get a little bit unleashed. I am so disappointed and disheartened by what so many Christians are posting on social media or in conversations, what they're saying or doing. And I think we're forgetting it. I think, I think we're trying to be American. Sorry to my American friends. I think we've lost what it means to be Canadian. I think we, we've lost our identity as what it means to believe Be believers. And I somehow think that we need to be able to refocus ourselves, get back to who Jesus is in our lives, and be that representation where we walk on a daily basis. Who is our neighbor? And what are we doing to bring them good? Ultimately, what are we doing so that they may be saved? Paul said earlier in, in chapter 9, verses 20 and 23, that he was striving to live his life amongst those who were lost with a great purpose. If you listen uh, in, in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. You know, we, we live in a culture that constantly feeds us the message, live for yourself Gratify your own heart. Do what feels good and right for you. But this isn't what living your life for the sake of the gospel looks like. Living your life for the sake of the gospel is going to mean that there are times when we have to stop seeking our own advantage and living for the advantage of another, which is ultimately that they might be saved. How are we winning people over? And how do we begin to do this? Paul said to to start by looking at his own life, to become an imitator of him as he was following Christ. Become imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so the more I study Paul's letter and examine his life, the more I am convinced that while his life looked radical and crazy at times, Paul may have had the clearest understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Christ, and he lived his life committed to those convictions. Paul doesn't say this from a position of pride or arrogance. He said this to a church of believers in Christ who were terribly confused about the gospel's implication in their lives. And not only did they need words of clarification, they also needed someone to follow. They needed a model. They needed a mentor. And Paul says, well, then follow me because I'm doing my best to follow Jesus. And again, Jesus is the ultimate example for all those who want to live their lives for the sake of the gospel. All these exhortations that Paul had encouraged the believers in Corinth to live by weren't his own ideas or his own words of wisdom. They were observations that he had made from Jesus' life and ministry and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a few moments and try to make some application of this text if you haven't already done so. I think the question we need to wrestle with is this. How do we begin to flesh out some of these teachings in our context. And like next week, it's about head coverings. (laughs) You better tune and wear your hat. Tune in. But let's begin by by stating plainly two truths and then making an important contextual observation. Truth number one. Believers in Christ really do have freedoms in matters of non-essentials and shouldn't be restricted by other believers in regard to these matters. You hear what I'm saying? There are non-essential things that other believers shouldn't tell us, and I'll get to that in a second. Number two, personal freedom is not the greatest concern of the Christian life. Doing everything for the glory of God, seeking the good of others so that they might be saved is. And that's it. It's that simple. And as believers... I have to admit, there are some beliefs that we don't budge on. Listen, the inerrancy of Scripture. God is triune. Uh, humanity is sinful. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The virgin birth, the sinless life of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Jesus alone for salvation. These are beliefs of which we don't budge. This is what we stand for. These are foundational truth for which we have an obligation to point it out and to call on those who teach otherwise. I would even say call out those who teach otherwise. These are the absolutes. I'm not talking non-essentials. I'm talking absolutes where we could even break fellowship with one who said that, you know, they didn't hold on to these. Those are strong words, but those are foundational aspects of the Christian faith. But the sad thing amongst many believers is that we're fighting wars over the non-essentials. We feel so strongly about our personal convictions that we draw up battle lines and we break fellowship with other believers over issues that are in the long run are non essential. Here are some things that Christians fight, Christians fight over. Spiritual gifts. We'll be getting to those, but you know, things such as speaking in tongues and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Worship styles. Bible translations. The way we dress. Models of church government. The way we baptize in water. Smoking, drinking, dancing. I could go on. We can't be baited into conflicts with other believers in Christ because of our personal preferences. We have freedom in regards to non-essentials, as do other believers in Jesus. Instead, we need to be evaluating our personal use of the freedoms we have. And I'm not sure we're doing that all too well. Are we using our freedoms to the glory of God? Are we making sure that the use of our freedoms aren't becoming hindrances for non-believers who still need to respond to the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf? There are people all around us who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and few of them are hearing that good news from us because we're not willing to lay aside our own freedoms long enough to seek their good and their salvation. I'm done, and you can say amen or ouch. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Today, for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find in these passages, the truth that is so very, very practical. And we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit to apply it, that we might, with everything that we do, bring glory to your name and never a reproach. Help us, God, to avoid sin so that we could avoid your chastening, so that your name would not be polluted in the eyes of the world. And Father, I pray this prayer summing up the hearts of all of us watching and tuning in today. God, may we glorify your name in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus I pray, amen. Soul Sanctuary, go now in the freedom of the gospel of Christ. Encourage one another daily to lead lives worthy of God and walk together in service and humility. Let your words And your lives be one in Christ. And may the God of lasting love open the way before you. May Jesus, the Messiah, be your one mentor and instructor. And may the Holy Spirit lead you on into the promised land of God's kingdom and glory. Amen. Now go in peace and live the church. We'll see you next week.